0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. It simply cannot be real. Just a month before, a similar scene of horror had presented itself. What terrifying legacy was left on this farm? What secrets did this land hold? That could be causing this chain of horror. Is the very soil beneath their feet cursed? The truth though is less mystical and far more human, although no less difficult to comprehend. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to episode 99 and a half, the murder Of Arnold Schultz. This episode is sponsored by the new release biographical crime movie Bandit. In 1985, Gilbert Galvin Jr., played by Josh Duhamel, a charming career criminal, escapes from a US prison in Michigan and crosses the border into Canada where he assumes the identity Robert Whiteman. After falling in love with Andrea, played by Alicia Cuthbert, he turns to robbing banks and discovers he's very good at it. Pretending to be a security analyst, Robert begins flying around the country, robbing multiple cities in a day, eventually catching the attention of national news outlets that dub him the Flying Bandit. Robert becomes addicted to the rush and money, and soon turns to loan shark and gangster Tommy K, played by Mel Gibson, to hook him up with bigger opportunities. But Robert's notoriety is growing, and a ruthless detective, played by Nestor Carbonell, will stop at nothing to bring him down. The movie is based on the 1996 true crime book The Flying Bandit by Robert Knuckle, and I don't think I have to tell you that this one is definitely for you, true crime fans. The movie released nationwide in cinemas last week, and I'm pleased to announce the winners of the two double tickets we're giving away. Drumroll, please. Michelle Whitehead and Chantal Roma, you and your best true crime friend, are going to see Bandit for free. If you're not one of our lucky winners, book your tickets now. A huge thank you to Bandit for sponsoring True Crime South Africa. Now, if you're looking at the numbering sequence of this episode and thinking, okay, it's finally happened, Nicole has finally completely lost the plot. Well, you're not entirely wrong, but there is a method to my madness. I know you're already surprised to see another full episode released within such a short period from the last, And the numbering of this episode is probably equally mystifying. The last episode was 99, and 100 comes after 99, right? Yes, and no. So I managed to double book myself on sponsors this week. No idea how that happened, but it did. So I needed to release two full episodes. Problem number one. Although I'm sure that's not a problem for listeners. Then, this week's episode happened to be number 99. And if I released two episodes, then this one would have to be number 100. But I've got something very special planned to celebrate episode 100 of True Crime South Africa, and that can't happen this week. So here it is. Episode 99 and a half problem-solving at its best, right? Just go with it. The case I'm covering in today's episode is actually two cases, but I'll be focusing more on the second, as the first is still ongoing in court, despite having occurred ten years ago. It is impossible to tell one story without at least telling part of the other, though, but I'd like you to keep in mind that the defendants in the first case are still innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. My sources for this case include an episode of De Start Tien, as well as several media articles. So let's get into episode 99 and a half The Murder of Arnold Schultz. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, Or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Arnold Schultz lived on his farm in Philippi in the Western Cape for decades. Philippi is built on the Cape Flats Aquifer, a vast underground water reserve that feeds the Philippi horticultural area and enables farmers there. To produce multiple crop cycles each year. But in recent decades, and especially as a result of the Group Areas Act, agricultural land in Philippi has diminished as more settlements, both formal and informal, have sprung up. When Arnold first moved onto his farm with his first wife, it would have been pretty rural and far-flung. But over the years, as nearby industrial and residential areas expanded, he ended up being on the side of a huge main road that runs through several areas. And suddenly, he had a mall just six metres from his doorstep. Although this was far from ideal, Arnold continued to hold his land dear. But with such a main road nearby things did get more and more dangerous for him and his family. Arnold Schultz was an amputee. He lost the lower part of one of his legs at some point. I was unable to determine how this happened, but it certainly didn't seem to stop him. Rather than using his land for agricultural purposes, Arnold decided to start what he referred to as a sand farming operation. Now, When I first heard this, I was a little confused, and this is one of the things I love most about this podcast journey. I learn so much about all sorts of things while I'm researching. So if you, like me, hadn't realized that sand is big business, here's the story. Sand is the most mined commodity in the world. Globally, we use 53 billion tons of sand per year. This mostly goes into construction to make concrete, as well as in the production of glass. But, believe it or not, we're actually running out of sand, and in places like China, it's actually become a black market item. Yes, sand is sold on the black market. I know, right? Anyway. The mining of sand has become one of the top contributors to environmental damage, with entire islands in Asia being completely wiped off the map after being mined for sand. As with any commodity, the more scarce something becomes, the more valuable it is, and this is the industry Arnold Schultz decided to enter, using his piece of land in Philippi. He, of course, was processing sand legally, and there's no indication he was part of any black market operation, as that hasn't really taken off yet in South Africa. Yet. When he divorced his first wife and she moved off the farm, his daughter Suzette remained behind, and she would soon marry. Suzette and her husband Christopher would move on and off the farm in the ensuing years, but always stayed close by, and she maintained a strong relationship with her father. A few years after Arnold and his wife divorced, he met Hester Koch. Hester and Arnold headed off immediately, and she moved onto the farm. Hester's children, including her son Leslie, would also occasionally live on the farm for periods in the years that followed, and although Hester and Arnold never married, her children referred to him as their stepfather, and both families assimilated and seemed to get on with one another. Hester played a major role in the running of the farm and Arnold's business. Although Arnold was really independent and had taught himself to do most things despite not having both his legs, his disability did hamper certain parts of his life, and he relied on Hester quite a bit. Hester's granddaughter Jade, her daughter's child, would spend quite a bit of time on the farm too. She was very close to her grandmother and enjoyed spending time with her there. As she grew up, Jade would move to her own home off the farm, but still regularly visited there. Hester's son, Leslie, had a bit of a chequered past. He had quite a few convictions for fraud, and at some points he was convicted of murder, and served time for this crime. Unfortunately, I have no information on the murder Leslie committed, nor how much time he served for it. But in 2012, he was released on parole. He spent some time visiting with his mother and stepfather on the farm and then decided to put down roots in Johannesburg, where his mother had family and he hoped he may have a better chance of finding a job. Hester Koch was known for her big heart. She did everything she could, sometimes to her own detriment, to help those who were struggling. So one day in September 2012, when she spotted a couple begging for money on the side of the road with two small children, she pulled over and started a conversation with them. The couple, known as Shamima and Angelo, told Hester that they'd lost their accommodation because they couldn't pay rent and they were on the street with their children. Shamima was also pregnant and due to deliver her baby shortly. If they couldn't find accommodation, she didn't know how she was going to raise a newborn on the streets. Hester's heart broke for the family and when she returned to the farm she spoke to Arnold about how they could help them. The farm had several outbuildings that, although not in use, with a bit of TLC could certainly be livable, and Hester suggested they let the couple move onto the farm until the baby came and they could get back on their feet. The couple could help around the property to pay their way, as there was always something to be done that Hester and Arnold couldn't get to. Both Arnold and Hester's families pitched in to get the two-bedroom outbuilding sorted and ready for the family, and they moved in soon after. Shamima delivered her baby shortly after moving in, and for a while the arrangement worked well. Soon, though, It's alleged that the couple started to behave poorly. Hester came to realise that one of the main reasons the family was down on their luck financially was that one or both of the couple allegedly had a drug problem. It's alleged that they began to regularly use drugs on the farm, and Hester had had enough. She gave the couple notice that they needed to find somewhere else to live. Arnold had been in agreement with this, because he also didn't like how the couple had been behaving. On the fifth of november twenty twelve, police in Philippi received a hysterical phone call from Arnold Schultz. He said that he and Hester had been attacked on their farm, and he thought that Hester may be dead. When police converged on the Schultz farm that day, they found a scene of horror. sixty eight year old Hester Koch was found in one of the outside rooms. She appeared to have been strangled to death with a belt still around her neck. There was also a pillowcase over her face. An autopsy would show that the woman had been raped. The survivor, Arnold Schultz, told police that he and Hester had been asleep in bed that morning when there was a knock on the front door. He alleged that Hester had got up and gone to see who was there. She came back and told him that Shamima had asked to be let in so that she could get some items for the baby that was stored inside the house. Arnold said the last time he saw Hester alive, she was telling him that she was letting Shamima in and he'd fallen back to sleep. He awoke a while later to find four people standing around his bed. He says that two of those people were Shamima and Angelo, and the other were two acquaintances of theirs, who had visited the couple at the farm while they were living there. Shocked to find all of these people in his bedroom, and feeling vulnerable because his crutches, which he used to get around, were not accessible to him, Arnold demanded to know where Hester was. He claimed that Shemima had said Hester was dead in a room outside. Arnold then alleged that he'd been tied up and beaten while the four ransacked his house for 45 minutes. They'd stolen several items and then fled in his bucky. Both Hester and Schultz's family were horrified to hear about the savage attack and murder, and especially considering the accused perpetrators were people that Hester had tried to help. The four accused would be arrested in Schultz's bucky soon after and appeared in court the following week. Schultz attended the court proceedings and claimed that one of the accused had turned to him in court and blown him a kiss, in what he took to be a threatening manner. Now alone on the farm, Arnold Schultz was very nervous. He told his daughter that he feared for his safety, and although she could not go and live there because of her work, she visited as often as she could over the next few weeks and helped cook and clean for her dad. Leslie White had been very close to his mother Hester and when he heard of her murder he was completely devastated and like the rest of the family wanted to see justice done. Leslie though believed that there was more to his mother's murder than met the eye. He would later claim that things between his mother and stepfather had not been going well. He said that Hester had decided she wanted to leave Arnold and Arnold had been dead set against it, simply because it would negatively impact him financially, according to Leslie. He believed that Arnold had played a role in his mother's murder, and although there seemed to be no proof to support this, a deep rage began to bubble up inside Leslie toward his stepfather. In early December, Leslie received notification that his mother's ashes were ready for collection. He made plans with his niece Jade that they would scatter the ashes together, so on the 4th of December he travelled to the Western Cape. He spent some time at the farm with Jade, and she would later say she'd seen him shooting empty beer bottles on the farm in what appeared to be target practice. As he fired his gun, he seemed to get angrier and angrier. Then, he asked Jade if she'd take him to Polesmore Prison, as he wanted to speak with the people who'd been arrested for killing his mother. He and Jade did go to Polesmore that day, and it seems that Leslie was able to speak with one of the men. Jade did not go into the prison with him, so she would have no knowledge of what was discussed between them. But when Leslie came out, he claimed that the man had told him Arnold Schultz had been the mastermind behind Hester's murder. Now, I do want to say that, to this day, there is absolutely no proof that Arnold Schultz played any role in Hester's murder. But in Leslie's mind, this had become the truth. On the 7th of December, Leslie and Jade set out to Gordon's Bay to scatter some of Hester's ashes. He then asked her to keep his luggage with her and drop him off at Westgate Mall. He planned to return to Joburg later that day or the next morning, but he told Jade he had a few things he wanted to do first. They arranged that he would phone her when he was ready and she would drop his luggage off for him, most likely at Belleville train station. Jade dropped her uncle off at the mall and continued on with her day. At around 8.30pm that evening, Chris, Arnold's son-in-law, had called the man to check in. They chatted for a while on the phone, and Arnold reiterated that he felt unsafe on the farm. Chris said the man didn't sound like himself, and he was concerned for him as he was grieving and finding it difficult to get everything done on the farm without Hester. Chris and Suzette discussed how they could possibly support him better in the future, and then went to bed. The next morning, Suzette went to work and tried phoning her dad. He'd been on her mind throughout the night and she wanted to check that he was okay. Arnold didn't answer though. She tried calling again and again throughout her workday, but there was no answer. Alarmed, Suzette called her mother, Arnold's ex-wife, and asked her to go to the farm and check on Arnold. The woman went there and phoned Suzette, saying nothing seemed out of place, but they couldn't find Arnold. When Suzette finished work at 1pm that afternoon, she picked up her husband and they both went through to the farm. She had a spare key to the house, but she wouldn't need it, because when she turned the door handle, she found it unlocked. She called out to her dad and got no response. The house itself did not look out of sorts. Everything seemed to be exactly where it should be, all except for her father. They couldn't find Arnold anywhere. In the bedroom, Suzette found her dad's favourite hat on the bedside table. The man didn't go anywhere without that hat. He wore it every time he left the house. Establishing that Arnold was not in the house... Chris and Suzette walked out the back door. There she came across her father's crutches. Arnold couldn't get around without his crutches, and Suzette felt very uneasy. If, for whatever reason, Arnold didn't want to use his crutches, he did have a wheelchair as a backup, but that was in the house too. Taking a few more steps, she found her father's false teeth laying in the dirt. The couple did not touch anything and they didn't want to search any further either. Both knew that Arnold was somewhere on their property and decided to immediately call police. Philippi police arrived at the Schultz farm for the second time in the space of a month. Suzette and Chris showed the officers the crutches and the false teeth and these were marked with evidence markers and photographed. Then... Police began to search the property. They soon came across a wooden hut that was used for storing tools. The hut had a big chain around the door, but the search needed to be thorough, so with Suzette's permission, they broke the lock off the door and opened the hut. Inside, they found the body of 69 year old Arnold Schultz. Arnold's body was covered with a crocheted blanket. That Suzette identified as having come from the house. In the initial days, his cause of death was said to be stabbing. This is what the family believed had happened, and it was reported in all the media articles around Arnold's death. This was not actually how Arnold had died, though, and his real cause of death would be a key piece of evidence in this case, but we'll get to that later. I don't know for sure how this misinformation came to be in the public domain. It may well have been done purposefully by the police to use as guilty information. Only the real killer would know how Arnold had actually died. If that was the case, it worked very well. If it was simply a mistake that snowballed, it ultimately worked in police's favour. When news of Arnold's death was delivered to his family and Hester's family, everyone was in shock. It seemed too horrific to fathom that both members of the couple could be killed so savagely almost exactly a month apart. As far as everyone knew, the people alleged to be responsible for Hester's death were behind bars awaiting trial, so this could not have anything to do with them, could it? The family quickly considered, though, that Arnold was the only witness in Hester's murder. His testimony would be key to convicting the four people accused of her rape and murder, so they had to wonder whether this had been a hit by associates of the four to take out the witness. Jade White told journalists that she was angry with the police for not having put Arnold in witness protection. He had clearly been at risk and now he seemed to have paid with his life. While investigators certainly considered the possibility that Arnold's death was linked to Hester's ongoing murder trial, and that was one avenue they explored, they also could not pigeonhole their investigation. They couldn't rule out the possibility that Arnold's murder was not at all related to him being a witness, so they set about trying to figure out who Arnold Schultz was, and who may have wanted him dead. It would be in conversations with Arnold's family members that Leslie White's dodgy history came up. Police had had no reason to initially look into Leslie when his mother was murdered. There'd been no link or suspicion that he'd had any involvement, and he'd been nothing but an innocent, grieving family member at that point. But when one of the people interviewed asked, If police realised that Leslie was on parole for murder, their interest was entirely piqued. As they went from interview to interview, a similar story started to build. Leslie and Arnold had not seen eye to eye. After Leslie's release on parole, Arnold had been hesitant about him visiting his mother on the farm. Then the detective on Hester's case recalled that Leslie had had a theory about his mother's murder having been orchestrated by her husband. He'd been quite pushy about the point, saying that police needed to look into Arnold's possible involvement. They had, as a courtesy, and found no proof that Arnold was anything other than a victim. But now, they wondered if Leslie had accepted that, or if he'd still held a grudge against his stepfather. After Arnold's body was found, police had confirmed that Leslie was back in Johannesburg, but Jade gave an honest statement to them about the days leading up to Arnold's death, and they realized that Leslie White had in fact been in the Western Cape at the time of the murder. Jade White had absolutely no understanding of the value of the information she was giving police when she told them about her interactions with her uncle in early December. She was simply being honest, but her information was golden. She told them about Leslie coming down to spread his mother's ashes. She told them that on the day Leslie arrived, he'd been at the farm with her, and she'd seen him shooting beer bottles. Then she told them about the visit to Polsmore. She relayed how they'd spread Hester's ashes in Gordon's Bay, and then she dropped Leslie off at Westgate Mall. She told officers that at 11pm that night, her uncle had called her from Belleville train station. He asked her to bring his luggage to him. She had gone with a friend to meet him and delivered his bags. Leslie had said that a friend of his was coming to pick him up and they were going to drive back to Johannesburg together. Jade had wanted to wait with her uncle until his friend arrived because she was worried that he would get mugged but he'd insisted that she and her friend leave, so they did. She said that Leslie had seemed really jumpy or nervous about something, and she thought it was because he was there at the station alone, but he'd still insisted he didn't want her to stay. That was the last time she saw Uncle Leslie. Police considered the timeline, Arnold Schultz had to have been killed after 8.30pm when he got off the phone with his son-in-law. If Leslie White had been dropped off at Westgate Mall that afternoon and was seen at Bulville Station at 11pm, he had more than enough time to have killed Arnold Schultz. Westgate Mall was just 6 metres from Arnold's property. With what they felt was significant enough evidence to arrest Leslie White, at the very least, of being in possession of a firearm which went against his parole conditions, Leslie White was arrested and brought back to the Western Cape. Leslie denied any involvement in the murder of Arnold Schultz. Police did not find a firearm on his person when they arrested him, but they did find shattered beer bottles and bullets on the farm in the same place Jade had said her uncle had been target shooting. They considered this sufficient evidence to initially charge him with unlawful possession of a firearm and ammunition, and his first court hearing would blow the murder parts of this case wide open. During the first court hearing, it was mentioned that Arnold Schultz had been murdered on the farm on which Leslie White had been seen illegally in possession of a firearm. Also in this hearing, the family of Arnold heard, for the first time, that Arnold had not died of stab wounds. He had been shot once in the back of the head. The news of the real cause of death soon spread among Arnold and Hester's family, and when Hester's sister in Johannesburg heard this, she was horrified and immediately contacted police in the Western Cape. The story that emerged from Leslie's aunt would stitch together the entire case. Leslie's aunt said that her nephew had phoned her on the morning of the 8th of December to say he was on his way back to Johannesburg in a taxi. She'd been really concerned about him driving in a taxi as she knew them to be notorious for poor driving, especially on the long road, so she'd called him regularly to make sure he was okay. When she called him at 10.30am that morning, he said he was in Bloemfontein and the taxi driver was driving really badly. He mentioned to her that he'd been informed that Arnold was missing and that his house had been ransacked. Leslie had eventually made it back to Johannesburg safely and went to stay with another family member. His aunt had visited him there the day after he arrived as she'd asked him to bring a family recipe book back with him from the Cape and she needed to fetch that. She said that Leslie had seemed completely fine when she saw him that day. Then, on the 18th of December, he'd arrived at her house unannounced at 2.30am. She'd been quite angry with him for waking her up, but he'd acted like it was nothing out of the ordinary and clearly needed to talk, so she sat up in the lounge with him. Leslie had started to talk about how he believed Arnold had been involved in his mother's murder. He told his aunts that he'd gone to Arnold's farm that day after Jade had dropped him off at the mall. He said he wanted to scatter his mother's remaining ashes under a big tree on the farm that she loved to sit under. But when he arrived and Arnold saw what he was doing, the older man had freaked out and shouted that he shouldn't dump that stuff on his farm. He could dump it on the sand heap if he wanted to. He told his aunt that he'd become extremely angry, but that was all he said at that point. Then the woman said, as he was leaving, Leslie had blurted out, "Okay, I admit it, I did it, I shot the bastard. I lost it when he spoke about my mom like that, and I shot him. Leslie's aunt said she'd honestly thought Leslie was talking nonsense. He was well known for telling tall tales, and she said he'd always wanted to be the family's hero, ever since he was a little boy. Added to that, the fact that she thought at that time that Arnold had been stabbed to death, so she put absolutely no credence in the confession. When she heard that Arnold had actually been shot, though, her blood ran cold. As much as she cared for her nephew, she knew very well that he was entirely capable of murder. He had done it before, after all. With the statement on record, prosecutors knew that they had more than enough to add murder to Leslie's charge sheet. The only missing part of the puzzle was where Arnold Bucky was police had been unable to track it down, but with the information about Leslie's travels back to Joburg, they started to pull CCTV footage. The first piece of footage they looked at was from Belleville train station, and sure enough, just before 11pm, Leslie is seen pulling into the station's parking lot in Arnold's Bucky and parking the vehicle out of sight. A while later, Presumably after he'd met with Jade, he returns to the vehicle with his bags and drives off. Police believe that Leslie had driven back to Johannesburg in Arnold's Bucky and either sold it or abandoned it somewhere when he arrived there. The other telling part of his aunt's statement was that at 10.30am on the 8th of December, Leslie was already saying that Arnold was missing, and his house had been ransacked. Arnold's body was only discovered after 1pm that day. Suzette had called several people, including Leslie, to ask if they'd seen or heard from Arnold, but to say that he was missing at that point, and to say his house had been ransacked, was far more information than anyone else had. A final statement police received from Leslie's girlfriend in Johannesburg would add further circumstantial evidence to the growing pile. The woman said that Leslie had called her on the evening of the 7th of December to say that someone was shooting at him and he might have to shoot back. He'd then put down the phone and she was only able to get hold of him again later when he'd said everything was fine and he was safe. Police did compare the bullets they found in the field with the bullets that had killed Arnold, And while the striations on the bullets could not conclusively say they'd both come from the same firearm, both were the same caliber weapon. Leslie White was charged with the murder of Arnold Schultz, the theft of his vehicle, and the illegal possession of a firearm and ammunition. His trial started in October 2014, and it soon became clear that this was going to be a highly emotional case for all involved. Two families were now bound together in the worst way possible. The Kochs and White family were mourning Hester, but Jade and Leslie's aunt were forced to testify, and although they were only telling the truth of what they knew, it was a truth that would likely send Leslie to prison for the rest of his life. At the same time, the Schultz family found it difficult to accept that someone who they'd considered kin could have ended Arnold's life. Leslie White pleaded not guilty to all charges against him, but he would not offer any alternative version to counter the state's allegations that he'd killed his stepfather. He remained silent throughout the trial, and cross-examination of witnesses was minimal, because his defense seemed to only be he didn't do it. He was not able to provide an alibi for the period between when Jade had dropped him off at the mall and when she'd seen him at the train station. In the end, the circumstantial and witness testimony was insurmountable, and with no alternative version to consider, Judge Pearl Mantame found Leslie White guilty on all charges. Leslie was sentenced to an effective 25 years in prison for his crimes. I would think, considering he'd violated the conditions of his parole, that he would first have to finish serving his first murder sentence however long was left of that, but I don't know whether that would have happened or whether he simply would have served that balance concurrently with the new sentence. For Hester's family, it was a double blow. They had not only lost Hester, but now Leslie was behind bars again. Additionally, the murder of Arnold had stalled the trial of Hester's alleged murderers. To this day... The case against those four people remains on the court roll according to prosecutor Susan Galloway. I have no idea if those four people are still in custody or if they've been released on bail pending their trial. I highly doubt they would still be in custody as their lawyers would no doubt have been able to argue that their rights to a speedy trial had been impeded upon. In fact, I'm surprised that ten years later This case is even still on the roll and has not either been withdrawn pending further investigation or struck off entirely. I can see how the case against the four may be flimsy without Arnold's testimony if there was no physical evidence, but they were found in the stolen vehicle and Arnold's statement is still on record. Either way, Hester has not received the justice she deserved and as much as Leslie may have believed that he was carrying out justice for her, he was not, because whether or not there was any link between Arnold and Hester's murder, Leslie White had no right to kill him. I will say that I have spoken with many family members of victims who've told me in confidence that killing the person who killed their family member had crossed their minds more than once. And I get it especially when we see people getting out on parole and doing it again, like Leslie White, which is the horrible irony of this case. Leslie White was the wronged secondary victim of his mother's murder. He was the victim's family member, but he also came to represent the very reason that families sometimes consider such extreme measures When he had the privilege of being released on parole and instead of continuing on with his life, he became a murderer again. I cannot conclusively say that Arnold Schultz was or was not involved in the murder of Hester Koch. One would think that if the four people arrested for her murder got the opportunity to throw him under the bus for a deal, they would. I think that would have happened almost immediately one of those four would have cut a deal. The other part of this is that Leslie White did not attempt to present any defense. Why? If he had really killed Arnold Schultz in a rage believing the man had orchestrated his mother's murder, why did he not use that as a defense in court? May honestly have worked. If he'd brought the accused who he claims told him in Polsmore that day that Arnold was involved and made him testify to that, that may have counted in serious mitigation for him. But he didn't. He sat there in silence and simply claimed he was never there. In addition to that, he proclaimed that he was angry with his niece and aunt because they testified against him. But they had no choice and they did feel terrible about it, but they had to tell the truth. It may be unfair of me, but honestly, if Leslie White had not been a career criminal and a paroled murderer, I may have given him the benefit of the doubt. I may have thought, maybe this son, so caught up in his grief, just wanted someone to pay, and was entirely convinced that Arnold was involved. Even then it wouldn't make it right, but I may have been able to put myself in his shoes to a certain extent. The fact that Leslie White had killed before, though, really does put a spanner in the works. Had this become his way of sorting things out in life? Was past behaviour just the best predictor of future behaviour? Or is that in itself an unfair statement? and should that not even be taken into consideration. If Leslie Wyatt thought he was doing the right thing, he was sorely mistaken. Even if he'd taken out the mastermind, he left the perpetrators, those who are alleged to have actually raped and murdered his mother, to walk the streets, and very possibly do it again. Neither Hester Koch nor Arnold Schultz Deserved what happened to them. And although their murders were completely separate events, it's certainly true that if whoever killed Hester hadn't done so, then Arnold's murder would never have happened. Or maybe it still would have. I guess we'll never know. What's left behind is two families bound by grief. One still hoping for justice and the other having received it. But neither one wins. Both lose. Everyone loses. Especially Hester and Arnold. Hester Koch. Arnold Schultz. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 99 and a half, the murder of Arnold Schultz. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.